0: I had a pulled hamstring and uh, I played the whole year with it. And what they did was they uh, shot it with Novocaine and uh, I'd play and on Monday after the game, I could hardly walk.
1: From Grindstone, this is Nebraska Made, a narrative journey through the lives of Nebraska's most inspiring business leaders. We unpack the intimate details of how our guests navigated obstacles and built their companies in pursuit of the good life. I'm JT Martin, and today we are from one of the greatest to ever coach the game of football, three-time national champ and Hall of Fame coach, Dr. Tom Osborne. Our guest today does not need much of an introduction. Tom Osborne was born in Hastings, Nebraska, and rose from humble beginnings to build the University of Nebraska into the greatest college football program of the 90s. And if you weren't around in the 90s to witness it, it was pandemonium. At game time, the entire state would become a ghost town because every single Nebraskan was completely glued to their television set. Some fans would even mortgage their homes to follow the team on the road. Tom has a way of leading and growing young people, and he attributes some of his earliest lessons in mentorship to his grandfather, who's also named Thomas Osborne.
0: My granddad was a Presbyterian minister, but I always admired him because he was a, an educated person who'd gone to college. He was a guy who uh, was influenced strongly by a guy named Currents, who was uh, also a, a traveling Presbyterian minister, and. Um, There was something at a school or church where my grandfather gave a speech. And my grandfather, I would assume, was about fifth grade at that time. And apparently, for some reason, Currens was impressed. So he said, I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but I I think maybe someday you could be a a great preacher. Of course, my grandfather never thought about it, never entered his head. And so Currens said, well now, uh, you're going to have to go to college, you want to be a preacher. So uh, with Kearns' encouragement, he went up to Alliance, Nebraska, got on a train, went down to Hastings, Nebraska, where there was a Presbyterian College called Hastings College. So, um, you know, I, I saw the power of mentoring early on because for all practical purposes, Kearns was my grandfather's mentor. And if Kearns had not been in his life, I'm sure My grandfather probably would have gone to work after seventh grade, probably would have been in in an agricultural setting, nothing wrong with that, but when you're only maybe 13, 14 years old, uh, then certainly your horizons are pretty limited.
1: It was a tough life back then, and so you really kind of learned from his perseverance and that seemed like it made an impression on you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was, he was an educated person mm-hmm. at a time when very, very few people in Nebraska went to college. And uh, so I admired that. Probably the most significant date that I can remember back then was December 7th, 1941. And uh, on that date, uh, obviously Pearl Harbor was bombed, and I remember my dad's reaction. I was four years old and my dad jumped out of his chair and he said i'm gonna get into this thing i didn't really fully understand what that meant
1: your father fought in the battle of the bulge which was the most deadly american battle in world war ii tell me about that you you probably didn't hear from him for a while and when he got back you probably really wanted to impress him
0: well uh, you know, when, when somebody leaves when you're four, and then he comes back when you're nine, uh, you really have pretty much, I mean, I got a letter or two for, from him, and, and um, I knew who he was, and I admired him, but he was a stranger to me, and uh, my my mom was very patriotic, too, so she went to work in a ammunition plant down in Grand Island about 50 miles 20 miles south of of, uh, St. Paul, and then one day the uh, ammunition plant blew up and uh, several people were killed. And uh, my dad heard about it and he wrote home and he said, you know, uh, one of us better survive the war, so uh, I want you to quit. So she went back to teaching school.
1: Both of Tom's parents, Irma and Charles Osborne, survived the war. Charles fought in the Battle of the Bulge, which was the bloodiest battle for the U.S. forces in World War II. The U.S. suffered 90,000 casualties alone, and German forces had surrounded the Allies and cut off all communication, so Tom's father couldn't write home for a number of weeks, and Tom says he remembers his mother crying often. When Tom was 9 years old, his father returned home, and the one thing that Tom and his father really connected over was their love for sports. So your father comes back from the war. He was an athlete himself. You mentioned he was very into athletics. Mm-hmm. So you became very interested in athletics. And you, kind of jumping forward a little bit here, you were the high school athlete of the year at Hastings High School for the state of Nebraska and then the Nebraska college athlete of the year at Hastings College, the only person to ever be named both high school and college athlete of the year.
0: At at that time, whatever whatever sport was in season, you played it. So I played baseball in the summer, I played football in the fall, basketball in the winter, and ran track in the spring. Right. And, uh, and part a lot of it was my dad's influence to some degree, but I, I liked athletics too. Sure. And it, it wasn't that I was anything special, but I I did fairly well in a lot of sports. And I guess that's why somebody decided to name me Athlete of the Year. That's very subjective. and. Mm-hmm. But I had a chance to go in the NFL and went out to San Francisco and played there for uh, a year. And so that was a good good experience. And uh, so I, I stayed there for a year and then got picked up by the Redskins and played a couple of years back there. And uh, still wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was thinking about going to to law school while I was was uh, with the, the Redskins in the off season. And by then, I had a pulled hamstring and uh, I played the whole year with it. And what they did was they uh, shot it with Novocaine. And uh, I'd play and on Monday after the game, I could hardly walk. And then by Tuesday, I could kind of jog through practice and. Then they'd shoot it again the next week, and I developed a lot of scar tissue. And I realized that uh, if I tried to run full speed, I was gonna, that hamstring's gonna knot up, and I just couldn't play. Mm-hmm. So I came back and decided uh, that football was not there anymore, and uh, didn't plan to be a coach at all. And uh, But I also knew that I, it was gonna be hard for me to break away from athletics, because that had been my whole life, and. So Bob Devaney had arrived here on, uh, on the campus exactly the same month, January of 1962. And uh, so I went over to see him, I think one of the first days he'd been back on the campus. And I said, uh, you know, I've been playing pro football and playing football all my life and I uh, wondered if you could use me as a graduate assistant coach. And he said, well really, I, I've got all the coaches I need. I don't need any more. But he said, I do have these guys over in at uh, Quadrangle that have been causing trouble. He said, they've thrown the dorm counselor out and they're running the show. And I need somebody to move in over there, live with them and ride herd on them. And uh, so I moved in with them and broke up a few fights and, and uh, kind of settled things down.
1: I also heard that you got access to the uh, to the cafeteria, to the coach's cafeteria.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, to the training table with the, the players, right? yeah. Okay. So, yeah, there, there was no, no payment other than I got meals on the training table. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> <Free> also, food. <laughs> uh, also, I was hoping that maybe somehow I would be able to work my way in. And so apparently I did well enough that Bob decided that, when spring ball came around a couple months later, that he could use me as a coach.
1: So Tom becomes a graduate assistant coach and attends graduate school at the same time, all while teaching a full load of four classes. So he's spending about 50 hours a week in the football office and doing 80 to 90 hours a week altogether between teaching, coaching, and school. In his first year of coaching, he met his wife, Nancy, and they quickly got married. He went on to get his PhD in educational psychology in 1965, which is when Bob Devaney offered him a $10,000 salary to keep him on the coaching staff instead of going into teaching full-time. Tom told himself that he'd coach until age 35, and if he wasn't a head football coach by then, then he would go to teaching full-time. And in 1973, right at the age of 35, the perfect opportunity came to Tom.
0: So uh, about that time, Bob decided he was going to step aside and just be athletic director, because he was already athletic director. And so uh, he, for, for whatever reason, he said, I, I want you to take over. And I, I had tried to get a couple other jobs, came really close at Texas Tech. And uh, I really didn't want to follow Bob, because I knew what the history book was, that the, the guy who followed Bear Bryant or the guy who followed Joe Paterno or Bobby Bowden usually didn't last very long because seems like the fans were always uh, wanting that original guy back. The nostalgia and, uh, of the last coach. Yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, Bob had won two national championships uh, in the years immediately preceding my being the head coach. And, uh, but I also realized I didn't get all that many chances and I love Nebraska and I want to stay here. My parents lived here and Nancy's folks were from here so I, I said okay. And, uh, and so that's kind of how that all happened.
1: Hey Nebraskans, we've recently formed a new community for Nebraska-made listeners who subscribe to our Patreon account. And you might ask, what exactly is a Patreon? Well, it's a platform where you can give small donations to your favorite creators, like us, and you get to earn rewards. And in our case, you're gonna earn free merch, behind the scenes episodes and outtakes of your favorite Nebraskan entrepreneurs, and exclusive professional services like free LinkedIn headshots and business cards. You can subscribe by following the link in the description of this episode. Let's fast forward a little bit. We know about all the seasons, about all the records. You know, Steve Keen mentioned in his interview that we did with him that 1984 Orange Bowl and how it really showed Nebraska's character. That when uh, when we're forced to make a tough decision, we do the right thing. What do you think that that moment meant for Nebraska?
0: Mm. Well, I don't. I don't want to make it sound more heroic than it was because uh, you see, I, I think. Uh, uh, we were ranked number one going in that game, and uh, Miami, I think, was number two, and I thought, well, we kicked the point, and uh, we end up with a tie, and I'd remembered uh, just two or three years before that that Notre Dame and Michigan State had tied. It wasn't a bowl game, but it was kind of for all the marbles. It was late in the season, and these were the top two teams in the country and uh, one of the teams, more or less, sat on the ball and and played for a tie. And I remember how I felt about that, so I I just felt, yeah, if you're going to be national champion, you better win the game. And so we went for it and um, it was kind of interesting because we'd studied Miami pretty carefully and watched what they did down near the goal line. So um, we um, realized they'd be in a man-to-man coverage, and uh, we put our back up in a kind of a semi-wing position and ran him to the flat and took our split in, and Irving Fryer slanted in and took their two people in. But for some reason, at the last minute, the guy that was covering, covering Irving Fryer uh, saw what was happening, the halfback was going to the flat. He came off of Irving and and dove, just got a fingertip on the ball. I mean, it was, it couldn't have been more than a quarter of an inch. And the ball was just a little bit behind. If it had been here, there had been no question. (laughs) And so I I think probably seven out of ten times we we make that play. But in that particular case, the the guy made an extraordinary adjustment defensively. And then the ball was a little bit short. And so we walk off the field uh, losing the game. <laughs> hmm. But uh, that's that's football.
1: That moment seems like it just really symbolizes sort of the character of Nebraska, that when the going gets tough, Nebraska's going to do the right thing. Do you kind of see that as a, a constant here in Nebraska?
0: Well, I, I like people in Nebraska because they uh, I think, the, whether we realize it or not, there's still a uh, a remnant of frontier mentality, and that is that um, you know the only way you survived out here back when my grandfather was homesteading was you better have some neighbors who would come in and help you. So if your barn burned down or somebody was sick, uh, everybody would try to figure out a way to pull together
1: and after that play, Nebraska really did have to pull together. Some Nebraskans praised Tom as a hero for his choice to go for two, but others criticized him heavily. From the seasons of 1987 to 93, Nebraska lost seven straight bowl games, and the sentiment became that Tom was good enough coach to win games, but didn't have what it takes to win it all. It wasn't until 1994 that Tom was able to bring home his first of three national championships in the 90s, and solidify his place in college football coaching history. And it was during this 1990s run that Tom and his wife Nancy came up with an idea to help young people, but it had nothing to do with football. Can you tell me about what happened to give you the idea to start teammates? Um, And what was it like when you asked those first players to become mentors?
0: Well, Nancy had been... uh... Watching a segment of 60 Minutes, and uh, I think on that segment there was a guy named Eugene Lang. Eugene Lang was a, was an older gentleman, and um, he'd gone on to college and had had quite a bit of success in uh, in business, and um, and made some money. And he was invited to come back to speak at uh, eighth grade graduation of the school that he had attended as a uh, middle school student. So um, when he got up to speak to the students, just kind of on a whim, he said, you know, if you guys will graduate from high school and, and uh, get good grades, stay out of trouble, he said, I'll pay you way to college. And uh, so Nancy was impressed by that. And she said, uh, is there something we could do? And I said, well, Nancy, I'm not quite ready to put a elementary school through college <laughs> at <laughs> this point because, you know, at that time they didn't pay football coaches That's what much. they do today. <laughs> and uh, but I said, I'll see what we can do. So uh, the next day I got in front of our football team and I said, how many of you guys would be willing to serve as a mentor to some seventh or eighth grade boys in the Lincoln Public Schools? And... Uh, we had 22 hands that went up. So we we matched them up and just told our football players to meet with them once a week. And we said, you can bring them to practice if you want. Uh, you know, study with them a different format than what teammates now is. And, uh, and things seemed to be going pretty well. Once a month we'd get them together, play some basketball, have some pizza, have a speaker. And uh, this group of 22 was... You know, they they weren't necessarily all what we would call high risk, but there were quite a few of them that were chosen because they weren't performing real well in school. So um, we, uh, I, I got in front of them when we had them all together and I said, if you guys will stay out of trouble and graduate from high school, we'll pay you to, to college. And I had no idea where the money was coming from. I, I just felt like we, we'd do it. And um, and so uh, we were pleased because eventually these kids got to be senior, seniors in high school. And uh, of the 22, 21 graduated on time. Wow. Which surprised us. We thought maybe if we got you know, 12, 13 of them graduated, 14, that'd be good. But the thing that really surprised us was uh, of the 22, 18 went on to college. And, We thought maybe four or five of that group would go to college. So we thought, well, maybe there's something to this because it seems to be working.
1: So after its initial success, Teammates was off and running. The program started in Lincoln where they recruited 250 mentors and it quickly expanded across the state, then into Iowa, then Kansas, South Dakota and Wyoming. And once they had big enough data set to start looking at the graduation trends, they found a shocking statistic. Teammates' mentees graduated at a rate of 96%, and the national average was about 75 to 80%. What Teammates was doing worked. You mentioned sort of the cooperative kind of agrarian work ethic, but was there anything else about Nebraska specifically that you think really contributed to the growth?
0: Well, I, I think the uh, level of volunteerism is much higher in uh, in the plain states, in the, the middle of the country, <clears throat> than if you try to do this somewhere else. And uh, and so I, there, a lot of people are generous with their money, generous with their time, and, um, and strangely enough, although most people think, well the mentors doing all the giving, uh, mentors will usually report that they feel they get as much or more out of it than the mentee it uh, gives your life a sense of meaning and purpose that you don't find in any other way. And I think there are more people, probably in this part of the world, who are oriented that way than, and I'm not trying to throw stones at East Coast, West Coast, but there's a, I've been on both coasts. (laughs) And I, I know that the mindset is, on average, a little bit different than this part of the world.
1: Where can people go if they want to become a mentor?
0: You Go to teammates.org, and, and there'll be a, a place there where you can uh, sign up to be a mentor. And uh, so uh, it's fairly, fairly easy.
1: A year ago, teammates hit their 11,000th mentee, and the program continues to expand year over year. This year, through the Scott and Ashley Frost Teammates Donation Challenge, the Frosts are generously donating $125,000 to the Teammates Foundation and are challenging the public to match their gift. You can go to teammates.org to take part in the challenge or to become a much needed mentor. I'm JT Martin, and this has been a Grindstone production. Grindstone is one of the premier production and marketing firms here in Lincoln, offering everything you need to grow your business from video and podcast production to social media management and media buying. You can learn more by visiting grindstoneagency.com. Hey, thanks everyone for liking and sharing the promotions for this episode. We're pleased to announce the winner of the ticket giveaway.